Hello, my name is Dr. Deborah Fur Holden and welcome to At the Forefront. Okay, so we're gonna get started. I'm Dr. Deborah Fur Holden. I'm here today. I have two of my favorite people on the planet here. There's something about having uh, uh, good colleagues that are also friends and scholars. I got Dr. Ronnie Ellington. Uh, Dr. Ellington, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, um, my name is Dr. Ronnie Ellington. I'm an associate professor of mathematics education at Morgan State University. There I do research on understanding the uh, impact of policies on uh, diversity and inclusion in the STEM disciplines. I'm also the PI on the Bessie Coleman Project. Where we What's a PI, Dr. Ellington? I am a principal <laughs> investigator oh, okay. for the Bessie Coleman Project, which is an after-school project to in help students understand the importance of STEM in Who after Bessie school. Coleman? Bessie Coleman was the first African-American uh, woman to fly. Okay, got yeah. you. <laughs> got you. She, she so you, got a, you lead a grant that's founded in her name that's for African-American children, mm -hmm. specifically interested in STEM careers. Mm -hmm. Okay, got you. And I also am uh, work with the Seminole Project where we are transforming undergraduate STEM education. So my passion, as you can hear, is really about what are the things that impact, particularly black children, to be successful in STEM disciplines. What's STEM? Science, technology, engineering, and math. Oh, is medicine included in that? Yeah, if it's STEM, science, medicine. Okay, yes. I'm only asking because people talk about STEM a lot. And I'm gonna ask you some questions because yeah. <laughs> you, you'll do your science, sciencey thing. And I wanna make sure we don't leave the, the masses behind. Okay, good. Um, and the masses behind in the conversation, but a lot of times people are starting to now throw medicine in, um, in the world with STEM as well. Also psychology, people are doing that as well. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a bad thing, hey, if we could increase diversity across those areas. All right, fantastic. Then we also have good friend and colleague, the good Reverend Dr. Esquire, uh, Pastor Todd Yeary of Douglas Memorial Church and also the Rainbow Push Coalition. Pastor, introduce yourself. You covered my, most of the bases. That's, that's pretty good. I pastor Douglas Memorial Community Church in the inner city of Midtown Baltimore in the Upton community. Uh, I'm also an adjunct professor of government and public policy at the University of Baltimore, and I'm the senior vice president of Rainbow Push Coalition, which is a national human rights, civil rights, social justice advocacy organization headquartered in Chicago. Founded by? Founded by Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson. All right, all right. Good Reverend Dr. Brother Jesse Jackson. Okay, so thank you both for being here. We are in um, the uh, Old Flint Journal building, which is the site of um, Michigan State University Division of Public Health, where I serve as the director and also of the director of our Flint Center for Health Equity Solutions. Our show at the forefront really is about talking to people who have relative expertise in their domains um, and in their spaces and who are out there, what I like to call the skinny branches um, of that work. So we're going to do our best to keep it respectful, but I ask that you speak your truth. My show is for um, uh, the people who are listening and the people that aren't listening and don't like it. That's not my problem. The show's not for them. So we're going to roll up our sleeves and have a conversation. Well, it is for them. They need to they can be pushed, but if somebody say they don't like my show, well, then don't listen to my show. <laughs> I got the cure for what ails you. Okay, so we had talked a little bit earlier. We, we um, just came out of a really important conversation looking at really what are we going to be sort of doing in this area around equity and how do we 
um, see our work helping to, to push things forward. And we started talking about this concept that I want to expand on, Dr. Ronnie, around racialization. And uh, 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 another colleague, uh, uh, another lawyer, uh, John Powell, um, wrote this really great art article in, back in 2013 in Poverty and Race. And it was called Deepening Our Understanding of Structural Marginalization. And what I found really compelling about this, I've been, I've been looking at his work and the work of others as we tr try to unpack and understand what's happening with the opioid epidemic. We're not gonna talk about that now, we might get to that later. And I found this notion, and I found myself describing what was happening around how we started to intervene on opioids as a racialization process. And I said, we've racialized the opioid epidemic and we've racialized the interventions that are designed to curtail the epidemic, evidenced by the fact that we are seeing improvements in opioid overdose death and then people getting into treatment, et cetera, in white communities at a much greater rate than we are seeing in African-American communities. Quite the contrary, there are some states actually where the rates have begun to level off or the slope, if you will, have slowed down for whites and it's actually accelerating for blacks. And I said, how did y'all take something that was a majority white problem and white folks are getting better and black folks are getting worse. We've racialized all of the efforts around the um, opioid uh, epidemic, many of them. And so I, I got curious in, in this concept because people say, well, what is racialization? And I found what I thought to be a, a very uh, succinct and clear way of describing it. Uh, and John Powell gives us that, um, that definition. And, and, and Brother Powell is the director of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at the University of California, Berkeley. And in this 2013 article in Poverty and Race, he says, Raci racialization connotes a process rather than a static event. It underscores the fluid and dynamic nature of race. Moreover, racism is understood as a consciously motivated force. Racialization implies a process or a set of processes that may or may not be um, animated by conscious forces. Racism invites a search for a racist actor much as a web suggests the presence of a spider. Structural racism is a set of processes that may generate disparities or depress life outcomes without any racist actors. It's a web without a spider. And I thought that that was real deep. Uh, Dr. Ronnie, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, there's always a spider, and this is where I diverge from that. So the spider is the historic racism that is embedded in the society we live in. It is when we say we're doing interventions for people, generally people are known as white people. Let's just be honest. We as African-American people have not been seen in the same light as white people. So when interventions are done, even if they're meant to be for everyone, white people seem to benefit more because they're seen as people. They're the norm, they're the central, and they're the ones that when their problems become paramount, then we have to do something about it. Even the fact that we're focusing on op the opioid addiction and not necessarily the crack addiction <laughs> yeah. speaks to that when a problem occurs in what we call the white community, which is the normalized community, now we have to do something. And then we mobilize our efforts to support them. Now, we don't say that deliberately or intentionally, but that's what's happening. But I, the notion to me about a web without a spider, because if you say that the historical context yeah. is the spider, 
I actually think that's still the web. Okay. That's now, a, it's yeah, that's a, a, way, that's it's a, a way to strongly, see it, yeah. and, and don't get me wrong, <laughs> it's a strongly saying. woven web. The reason that I think that this is worth us unpacking a little bit is because the notion that there has to be a person with a bad intention. See, people oftentimes want to be judged not on their actions, not on the outcomes, but on their intentions. And when we talk to healthcare systems, for example, and I'll go back to the opioid example, and we say, why is it that whites are five times more likely to get medication-assisted treatment in the emergency department than blacks? If you talk to an individual provider, a nurse, a physician, they'll say, we don't know, we don't, I don't do that, we give everybody a fair chance, but the data don't lie and the statistics are what they are, right? And the reality of it is we've got people behind this, but it's more than that because when you start to unpack it, people will say things like, well, that particular person, I didn't start on medication-assisted treatment because they were homeless. So getting them started without them having all of the appropriate resources and supports, et cetera, that they need to actually get the treatment wouldn't have served them in the long run. But then we look at, well, who's more likely to be homeless? People with mental health conditions, women, uh, ethnic minorities, et cetera. So if you don't address that problem, by default, you've actually injected race and racism into how decisions get made, how services get delivered, and who has access to what. And I think it's a misinterpretation of the word intention. Yeah. See, people it, uh, confuse intention with willful. To me, you not you don't have an intention. You are an intention. You embody an intention. And being in America, living in a racist context, many of us are embodying the intention or the energetic of a racialized perspective. Yeah. So even though our will may not be to do harm, but our intention, our energetic, our set of beliefs, the way we perceive wor the world, the way we perceive people are shaped by the cultural context that we live. Yeah. So even though people are not willful in this perpetuation of racist or raciali racialized uh, perspectives, we all embody it because it's the water we swim in. And yeah. unless you're actively undoing that, then you're gonna be culpable in projecting that onto others. That's why I think the redefining of intention in not calling it will, I get it, you're not willfully doing it, but you are intentionally doing it because you embody those ideologies that would have you give this person something that you wouldn't give that person. Yep. And to pretend that we're not in that water and not be wet, to me, is the problem. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I think this ties back, that's what racialization yeah. is. We live in a very racialized <laughs> society. Yeah. So tell me, um, your space, STEM, science, oh, education. Um, I know if we reach way back to your dissertation. <laughs> girl. I'm not even going to ask you when that was, but I know it's been. 06. 06? Uh-huh. Not too long, but long enough. Not too long. 13 years ago. You were looking at high performers and, and high achieving mm -hmm. African American. Well, yeah, because the um, discourse students. in STEM up to that point, it's been shifting lately. It has been how do we fix the problem of African Americans not going into STEM in particular? This is this is my area. There are other people who look at Hispanics, et cetera, but I look specifically at African Americans. But at the time, the discourse was all about what they didn't have, what they lacked, what the problem was, and I felt you couldn't create success by looking at failure. 
Yeah. So what I decided, I said, well, if we want to know what makes a difference and have people be successful, let's talk to students who have been successful and try to unpack the social and cultural factors that shape their success, which was the genesis of my dissertation work and then subsequent work, therefore. And so what I learned from those students is they were successful despite the educational and institutional mechanisms that would have them be unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. They literally had a group of communities that worked with them that said, you have no choice but to be successful, and they actually bought into that. So they had what I call these protective factors that shaped their success that was not even something they did. They would even say stuff like, well, I didn't have a choice but be successful. My, my church people would come get me or whatever they, they would say that gave me insight into why is it that we're not fostering those protective factors in educational institutions and just focusing on curriculum reforms. And so that was my genesis. And so I believe that the reason we don't have diversity in STEM is because we're trying to fix the wrong problem. Gotcha. We're trying to work on educational initiatives and not address the social cultural factors that create successful individuals and then nurturing and investing in those. So it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I love about working in the space of equity is that, and, and specifically around creating solutions for equity, is I see a, a common mismatch in the level of the problem and the level mm -hmm. of the solution. <laughs> yeah. Right, so yep. we're very fast to mount individuals on, I mean, to mount interventions on individuals and on families. Mm -hmm. I remember a study that came out, I don't know, maybe it's been close to a decade, where they said on average, I think African-American children were hearing like several million fewer words um, by the time they got to preschool than their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. And so the this group that, that, that um, did this study then developed an intervention to train African-American mothers and caregivers to have more dialogue and interaction with their children. Mm. As if the problem was they don't see the value or know mm -hmm. the importance or know to talk to their children. So of course, what happens when they try to implement this intervention? Those moms are working oftentimes out of the home and mm. multiple jobs to you know, because of the systematic That's and structural right. issues they that have it be that they don't have the same opportunities mm -hmm. for the amount of time and, and language and language ac acquisition exchanges that others would have. And I was, I just remember the first time I heard somebody present about this, I was so offended yeah. because it would imply that the problem is over there with the mothers as if African-American mothers don't want the same thing for their exactly. children that white mothers and Hispanic mothers mm -hmm. and Native American mothers want for theirs. But that's the discourse. Everything's framed in this deficit model. Yep. If, if there is a disparity, it's you. And I, I, in STEM, I, I really debunk that all day, every day, that that's not why we're not participating at higher rates. It's because of these structural issues that even the brightest children in STEM who are promising have to confront with very little support. Yeah. And that's why HBCUs tend to be the place where we cultivate STEM scholars because we understand that and we create environments for them to flourish, not just educational practices. Of course, educational practices are important, but they're only part of the equation. Yeah. Um, so I don't think this is a, a strategy problem. It's an intention problem. We don't understand the depths of our energy around 
perpetuating these inequitable, because to even suggest that a solution would be to have them say more words, I would just look like, are you serious? Somebody funded this? Uh, yeah. Not only are you serious? Funded the foundational research and then funded the work to develop the intervention to train the moms to spend more, have more interactions with their, with their babies. Yeah, and that's what made sense. This is again this notion of people doing things to people mm. and not with them and for them. If you lack the cultural understanding or the, you know, we talk about cultural competence. I'm very reluctant to, you know, use um, language in, in these hard terms mm. that imply something is a thing rather than a process. Um, but yeah, when you lack that cultural awareness and competence, of course, that's what you would do. You would see that the problem is them. The problem is the individual. The problem is the person. And then you mount interventions at that level. Um, I want to double back to something you said. You talked about um, HBCUs um, helping to sort of address the um, some of the issues that we have around racialization in our um, educational system. I saw this really great post mm -hmm. on Facebook. It was by a um, young African-American woman, and she um, had on her Morgan Bears sweatshirt. Did you see this? Mm -hmm. And she, she, she had, like, her stats. You know, I graduated from a Baltimore City public school. I think she had around a 2.0 GPA. Yeah. I mean, she literally put her SAT score out. She had a 9-something, mm -hmm. you know, SAT, and she said she hadn't gotten in anywhere um, except for mm -hmm. Morgan. And it was like a, like a little love letter to Morgan, like, thank you to Morgan, you know, for believing in me and providing me a, a place to be educated when no one else would. And she said that she had completed her third degree since graduating high school, and she was about to start the doctoral program at Johns Hopkins. Mm. Yep. Because, again, it's contextual. So, again, HBCUs are by no means perfect in this because we, we have our challenges. But the systemic racist practices, we're always trying to, under, trying to undercut and disrupt. Yeah. So that, to me, is what we need to be doing in large scale. We need to think about what are the structural perceptions and practices that become the, the water we swim in that are perpetuating these racialized outcomes. And I think HBCUs, because we have that mission, are at least ongoingly taking ourselves on to do that because we are impacted as well yeah um the way we see uh uh academic uh what you call it i can't think of the word but when people are bright what does bright look like where there are very uh strategic ways we measure uh, brightness that may not apply to certain groups yeah maybe they show being stem bright or pr promising in different ways why are those things not acknowledged you know, and so there are certain things that we just take for granted, even in defining people and saying they're STEM ready or these are the ones we should be focusing on that may be inadequ inadequate or inaccurate given who we're talking about. Yeah. Especially when you rely heavily on testing and all kinds of things like that to say these are the promising students. Well, who defi does define testing? It's built in eugenics, you know, yeah. and it was designed to shift people out. So, again, these are the things that I try to unpack when I hear things that are just like, yeah, you say you want diversity, but you're unwilling to change any of your cultural practices. How do you expect to grow corn in a desert? So, again, this is interesting, <laughs> going back to this notion of the web without a spider, right? And so if you think about it, you just said basically that the – cultural underpinnings that there's that the even the things that we use to assess potential and aptitude and all of that came out of racism mm. are now in, integrated and included in a racialized um, 
educational system and uninterrupted or unintervened, in a way, I guess we are now all bad actors because unless we willfully, intentionally do it some other way, exactly, we are all culpable, uh, culpable, <laughs> and the fueling exactly the the sustainment of this racialized exactly. system. Exactly. I got you. <laughs> okay, exactly. good, um, good Reverend Doctor Esquire. Mm-hmm. I think it's time for um, you to chime in. So it's interesting because you have a couple of different perspectives, mm-hmm. having. Uh, matriculated through HBCUs. You're also, you have an academic appointment adjunct teaching at the University of Baltimore, correct? Correct. Uh, Also a recent graduate of their law school. University of Maryland, yeah. University of Maryland um, Mm -hmm. Law School. Uh, What are are your thoughts on this? We've got this racialized education system embedded in a much larger racialized um, society and that in a way we are all culpable because if we do nothing, then the process continues. The culpability question is significant, but I think historical context matters, and I think it is not coincidental that we're having this conversation on today, which is actually the 400-year marker of the first recorded arrival of African captives in this country. Mm, Today. 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 400 years ago, today. First recorded notation that there were 20 and odd Negroes on a ship called the White Lion that arrived at Point Comfort, which is in the area of another significant HBCU, Hampton University. Uh, You begin to kind of unfold the telling of this story, even though that was not our first arrival, it was the first recorded arrival. So there there is this issue of historical tardiness Uh that we associate the first time we are acknowledged in writing to be coincidental with the first time of our relevance to a conversation. Mm. So that's one. Uh, The other piece is when Professor Powell, as a legal scholar, talks about racialization, he's he's actually talking about the systematizing Mm. of racialized attitudes and behaviors, Mm. but those are historical as well. So if we go back and we look at the first rebellion where blacks and whites actually coalesced around an interest against a power, that was over economic interests. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about poverty, uh, poverty is a condition, it's not a color, but often when we talk about it, we put it in a tent that makes folks feel like all people of a certain hue have a certain economic predisposition. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's an issue. I disagree with this notion around the web absent a spider. Mm-hmm. Absent a spider because the spider's gone is, I think, what he's really pointing to. <laughs> because if I'm the one that's weaving it, yeah. I have to weave it in such mm-hmm. a way that I don't get trapped by it. Gotcha. And so the design of racialized systems has been for the somewhat exclusive benefit, not of all whites, but particular whites, to the exclusion of other whites. And so the masses get trapped in the web. Uh of the fighting over relevance amongst a smaller and smaller portion of the economic interest. And so the United States as an experiment is an economic interest. The reason we're having a conversation about opioids and not heroin is because Mm -hmm. that carries an economic interest, right? Mm. Heroin uh, is is an illicit drug, and opioid is part of one-sixth of the GDP of the U.S. economy tied to pharmaceuticals, it could carry with it a much larger implication 
for how we consider everything from healthcare to profitability to shareholder interest around publicly traded companies that supposedly do science. Mm-hmm. And so this, this conversation, I think, kind of raises the issue of why, why the work here is so particularly important because you have to navigate around the web without getting trapped in it. You cannot avoid it, right? Because some of the folks that you're trying to serve are stuck in the web. The problem is, is that the oppressed and the oppressor, if we use Paulo Freire's point, uh, the reason liberation is so important is liberation is really more important for the oppressor mm-hmm. than the oppressed because the oppressor is trapped by the same system. They just mm-hmm. refuse to recognize and acknowledge it. So the conversation of the work around poverty and race and systemized systems, uh, the reason you have HBCUs is because there had been an absolute prohibition against educating mm. slaves in yeah. the country. Yep. Then from the struggle with churches, oddly enough, their goodwill was supposedly to create educational systems. So many of the HBCUs were birthed out church, of yeah. church mission initiatives mm-hmm. uh, as a way to kind of do some some good outreach. Uh, and many of the HBCUs were established to train around three primary uh, fields of, uh, of study, mm-hmm. agriculture, education, and religion. Mm-hmm. So the emergence of this work is, is to break beyond the confines of the web. If you ever notice, the web has to attach itself to pre-existing structures. Yeah. Spiders don't build a structure for the web. They attach the web to something that's already there. What was there? There were the interests of the elite. So here's Constitution... 101, right? We the people. People is a legal term. We assume it to be a universal term. And so you can be human and not necessarily a person by law. We see it going on in terms of the whole immigration crisis is that the mistreatment of human beings is not because they are human beings. It's because they've not reached the legal status of person per U.S. law. So we have this issue. We the people did not mean all of us. Yeah. We know it didn't mean us. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, and the truth of the matter is, is non-landowning, non-male elites, they weren't people either. So when we read the Constitution in its original framing, it was written as an exclusive document that had to be pushed to be more inclusive, to make more room for it. Most of us are operating off of three amendments to the Constitution that came up after the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Absent those, we're still trapped by the web. And when we talk about, to Professor Powell's point, and I think this is the broader point, is that the spider that weaves the web always weaves the web from a context that the piece that is subject to trap its prey is not the side that the spider weaves from. Say more. So mm. the spider always weaves from what we might call the non-sticky side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because if, if they don't, they get, stuck. They get undermined <laughs> by their own design, yeah. right? The yeah. design of what they have intended to execute at a high level, even with the best intention, if they're not careful about which side of the design they're on, they're going to get trapped by it. And so we see it in politics. We see it in public health. We see it in institutional distrust, we see it in education, we see it in science, on and on and on and on. We see these issues where the, the relationship between the spider and the web, if there is a, a web where there is no spider, 
that says that the spider was on the spider's side of the design and has avoided getting trapped. And it would be interesting, how many times have we ever seen a spider that has spun the web get trapped by his own spinning? So if we're expecting the spider to think about anyone other than itself, the spider's not designing the web for us, it's designed to trap us so that then the spider can come back at a time of the spider's choosing and do what the spider would. That's systemic racism. That's racialization, a system that reimposes it. We see it in police brutality, right? What becomes the issue of spatial control of black and brown bodies to stay in certain places? That's the web. Don't cross outside of your lane, otherwise uh, you violate the rules of the web. The web, I think, becomes an interesting metaphor Mm. for the trap of race that has been, unfortunately, created going back to that original uh, rebellion, right? So uh, if if you look at, uh, I believe it was Shay's Rebellion, where you have poor blacks, poor whites fighting against the governor. What they then created was a falsified system of of skin color differentiation Mm. to create necessary distrust to protect the interests of the spider. Mm-hmm. The spider was the governor. In this case, the spider is the government, and the government becomes an agent of the exclusive interest of those who have to avoid getting caught in that very trap. The thing, though, is mm-hmm. a lot of the systems that are in place now actually don't require a spider anymore. They don't require maintenance. They don't require reinforcement. Martin Luther King had this great expression that for things to stay bad, good people have to do nothing. And I, and I don't even know if it's, I would even go that far because doing nothing would almost imply, like what Dr. Ronnie was saying, almost an intention. But some of these things are just so now ingrained and interwoven. It just is. It is. It just is. It is the water it's like we air. swim in. It's yeah, just the it. water just, we swim in. Yeah, but, but there are a lot of things that just are that are not acceptable to us. Absolutely. Right? So uh, for it to just be is not the same as it's being in its current form being acceptable. Mm -hmm. We've normalized it Mm -hmm. by intentional effort, even if that effort is abstinence. So Dr. King's point is silence is as much a deliberate act of indifference as overt acts of racism by way of terrorism and violence that we currently see. We see it going on right now in terms of the uh, the ongoing outrage, outrage of, uh, of mass shootings, right? Here's this fight. We have made it acceptable for certain numbers of deaths within certain contexts and confines to be normalized. Like, mm-hmm. okay, how many mass shootings did we have today? We don't even report them anymore. There's so much a normalized part of our existence. Only the most extreme instances even rise to our level of awareness. Mm-hmm. To then challenge that and say that that's no longer acceptable, you've got to rub against those who have made it uh, reasonable for that to be an anticipated outcome because they have an interest attached to it. And the way that you get some, some folks will fight for, some folks will fight against, some folks won't fight at all, and their silence is an indication that they're okay either one way or the other, or with their indifference saying, if nothing else changes, my interests are not affected. And so that's what happens with, uh, with public health. When we look at the very sticky history of public health in disaffected communities, particularly communities of color, we have seen that kind of, of structural 
reinforced indifference. You can't say to me that some of the experiments that have been well documented over time did not have somebody who was aware of the study recognize that the ethics behind the study were absolutely wrong and said absolutely nothing. Uh-huh. Right? So the notion that folks aren't saying anything is not the same as they're not doing anything. It's that what they are doing in terms of their absence is an intentional endorsement of the structure as it is, which then reinforces the process of racialization, right? Racialization, marginalization, whatever it is, standing on the periphery, as we often talk about in social sciences, is is a matter of independent actors choosing at what level they will engage, and their inaction is as much an action as an overt one. That's why I said we should redefine intention from willful to the energetic, and you're right. You're standing on the sidelines making sure your interests are protected. That's an intention as well. It's just as damaging as someone out there, hey, you go home and all of that. And I don't think people see it that way. And it's more like that. Yeah. yeah. So if we, if we use science as an example, there's a difference between the chemical formulation CO and the chemical, chemical formulation CO2. Mm-hmm. So carbon dioxide is a natural part of survival. Yeah. Carbon mm-hmm. monoxide is sinister unnoticeable, and by the time you begin to recognize the effects... It's too late. It's too late. <laughs> yeah. You're dead. Yeah. Right? And that's, and that's what racism and racialization has become. It is the carbon monoxide of social interactions around group distinctions necessary to protect the interests of an elite few. And if they stand away and say that the problems you have with opioid or heroin, as we would say back at yeah. home, or, or the crack <laughs> epidemic, or the issues with crime... It allows them to stand away, uh, stand off in an indifferent sort of way to say the problems that y'all are facing are your fault, right? It's kind of the justification for blaming the victim when in reality you saw it coming because you were part of the spider enterprise that built this thing (laughs) and you chose to disengage to allow the effects kind of roll out. So that's what eugenics has been throughout our history, right? It's been an intentional effort to kind of stand off uh, when we start talking about um, uh, the new science around repro- reproductive science and how you can actually alter the genetic sequence to kind of create these these pure babies, right? This whole notion of how science is being manipulated to create these outcomes is a reinforcement of the racialization. That's the spider. The spider's not there. You can't point to anybody. We see that in terms of the frustration around everything from litigation uh, to economic uh, engagement, to trying to raise the whole profile. Why is it that HBCUs are treated differently than predominantly white institutions? Because the spider's gone somewhere along the line because HBCUs cannot live up to these unreasonable uh, expectations of perfection that PWIs don't have to. We just saw it, right, with yeah. the recent scandal around yeah. affluent <laughs> white parents having to pay their way into affluent white schools as if we were going to always believe that they were always super qualified to get in. And then we have the perfect example of a young scholar of color who did not meet the standards of the web, right? The web of the SAT, the web of admissions, (laughs) the web of financial aid, uh, the web of being able to stay in school against surmounting debt, and then the web of being able to advance to uh, the next level, an advanced degree. All of that is there. The spider's not there but the effects of the spider are still there. You may not be able to see the spider now, but I promise you, if you see a web, you can tell the spider's been there. 
So here's what's interesting, right? And I don't know why I like the spider analogy. I know, but it's we, really... <laughs> we're going to ride this one all the way home, right? And so when I think about it, so I, I started to think about the solutions. And I don't want to jump too far ahead mm-hmm. to that. But as I started to think about it, you said the web of the SAT, the web of admissions and all that. So I think, well, where is the... When we start to look for solutions, you know, do we look for the spider? Because we do know, right? Even if there's a web with no spider, what we know is there was a spider there, mm-hmm. right? A spider is at the source mm-hmm. of the web that we see. It just is now absent or missing Chilling from the, the yeah. Okay. Do we go for the spider? Do we go for the web? Or do we go for the structures that the web is are supporting? Are supporting. The web. like And, and I don't oh, even wow. know. So I could imagine, like, people talk about prison, for example, and the whole prison industrial complex and that whole system. And mm-hmm. I've literally heard people say, you know, when we talked about slavery, people didn't say, you know what, we can fix this. We just need slavery reform. That sounds silly to even think about that, right? <laughs> but what, that's how we talk about prisons. Mm-hmm. We know that it is a system that is completely failed. It does not work. It definitely does not work um, for African Americans and, and mm-hmm. other racial and ethnic minorities. Yet, here we are continuing to do our best to try and make it better and say, it can be fixed, we can reform it, we can make it better. So if I think about the web that is all of the the sort of um, institution and systems and systems of systems that allow prisons to be what they are, in that example, and I think about the spider who spun mm-hmm. that web, I would say, oh, here we need to take down the structure supporting the web. And that's what a lot of deconstruction deconstructionalists argue that there is no way to reform the system. There's just tearing it down. Now, is that reasonable, realistic? We can have that conversation, but there are scholars who've been advocating for that for decades. Yeah. That that is the the access to having a equitable system is through destroying the structures, the web, the spider, all of it. <laughs> Get <laughs> it all and take it, burn it all. <laughs> and then, you know, who would argue what would rise from the d- ashes That's of right. that, right? We, Because, yeah, this is this, anyway. But. but the alternative is when we look at how addicts are treated, that very often until you have an adequate alternative in place, that can facilitate a healthy transition, you cannot deconstruct their addictive environment altogether. They will lose their mind. Yeah. So the, the concern is, is that we become so normalized mm-hmm. in our adaptation to a racist structure that if you take the structure out altogether, yeah. right, we wouldn't have anywhere else to function, right? Because there is no counter, right, for us to be able to hold on to. We've been detached from reason HBCUs have been so critical, they kept us connected with our history, yeah. right? But if you look at K through 12 in, in, in state uh, systems and their curricula, uh, they've taken uh, ethnic studies, mm-hmm. black studies out, right? So you have nothing to kind of hold on to. So when you become emotionally, socially, and functionally dependent upon the system that is actually confining you, if you take that away, what are you left with? And are you able to manage the chaos that can often throw plummet, fr- throw flump flow from it, gotcha. flow from it until you can get a system built in place. And our issue with uh, wanting to hold out for perfection mm-hmm. in system design makes it hard for us to do coalition building in the first place. Oh, right? absolutely. So, so, so I think you almost are, re- are forced into 
the lesser of the postures in terms of which is more ideal because the consequences of just kind of wiping everything out are so far beyond our ability to kind of anticipate or imagine. Um, we would then probably implode on our own kind of nihilistic tendencies as, uh, as a group uh, rather than trying to find a way how do we begin at least in the meantime to do a both and, not an either or. Let's reform, restructure as we can, deconstruct when and where we can and recognize that this is not going to be a pure uh, resolution to the, to the problem. It's gonna take a lot of time. If we're 400 years to today from the first notation, and we know that there have been thousands of years of the emergence of the kind of racialized attitudes that we see going all the way back uh, to almost the ice age, and you begin to kind of get the differentiation between uh, the physiological functioning of certain groups based on uh, environmental issues. When we look at the science of how does the pineal gland and the ability to produ produce melanin creates alternatives and distinctions in terms of everything from behavior to spirituality. How do those things impact our ability to kind of operate? And now many of us being trapped by that spider, we're detached spiritually, we're detached socially, we're detached economically, and we're detached historically. We have no historical awareness. So uh, you probably don't need to tear down the walls that the, that the spider web is attached to because they, they, you're dealing with kind of the effects of that kind of fallout in real time. I would suggest that rather than, than kind of having an all or nothing approach is you've got to have folks willing to infiltrate systems of marginalization, uh, much like the old adage, you gotta have some spooks who sit by the door. If you don't go in and learn the oppressor's methods and learn how the oppressor is trying to use those methods against your interests, then you're trying to go up against the design that you're already behind the power curve. They're farther ahead in terms of their next phase. It's like R&D in technology. By the time the next version of, let's say, an iPhone comes out, they've got two or three iterations ready to replace that one to keep you hooked because yeah. we're in an addictive culture. Yeah. Uh, we've got to figure out how to break that. I would start with cultural awareness uh, and, and a sense of self that allows us to build some resilience against the hostility of the context, whether it is socially, politically, economically, uh, and use that to, you know, if you build uh, the immune system of a racialized culture, then while you're working on doing the redesign, I think you have a better chance of, of keeping the integrity of individuals and communities intact. I love it. And I love you said building the immune system. I of the, know. That was of the, fabulous. Well, and I, it, it fits the, to me, I, I, we, we, we're not going to do this today, but we might have to do this on a, at a, another time, talking about uh, uh, racism as a disease that we've all been infected by and what does that mean and what does that look like. Well, my friends, having two of my favorite people in Flint is a treat beyond what I could ever say. Buy, I, does that mean you buying dinner? That, I'm buying lunch. I'll buy you lunch. I'll buy you dinner if you want dinner too. So uh, this is uh, at the forefront with Dr. Deb. Uh, I want to say thank you and uh, peace out to my fabulous guest, Dr. Ronnie Ellington, and the good Reverend Dr. Pastor Esquire Tyler. <laughs> Next time.